decidedly not and we no. are not promoting that we will happily <laughs> support we will happily support Movember and the cause behind it but he does not need to grow any sort of no, facial hair yours, in order Daryl? to do so <laughs> well to be fair i had the same discussion as emma had with kevin that yeah. melissa said not this year last year was enough you scared patients away but we will happily donate so yeah and i tried i even had like the beard a little bit and i shaved the beard but i left the mustache and she was like <laughs> welcome to the clinician life podcast i'm emma jack and i'm joined by my co-host daryl yardley and together we're on a mission to help you elevate your practice to new heights Join us each week as we bring you invaluable insights from some of the world's leading clinicians, from staying ahead of industry trends to crafting your dream career and life. We've got you covered. Get set to unlock your full potential. Here we go. Emma, why do you, what was, what was your reason to bring in this fine gentleman on as top of your list? Yeah, Jim, Jim, you a hundred percent. You were you were top of my list, um, and I think oh, for wow. a number of reasons. I think I so appreciate your approach and perspective around being a clinician and what it takes to be a clinician and what it doesn't take to be a clinician. Um, I feel like you've had such an interesting journey from, you know, and and. I don't even feel like I have full insights onto it. So I would love to hear more around your journey from like, you know, deep manual therapist. And I know you had the days of, of go, go, go and seeing a lot of patients and, and running your own show yeah. and, and how that has led to how you're supporting clinicians now and, and the sort of newer role that you've taken on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, so much of your wisdom is, so brilliant and i think more people need to know about you that's why yeah. thank you well, it's yeah so yeah and i think you know for for those of you that don't know jim like em and i have been super excited to have mr jim millard on this podcast oh. for weeks now and and jim i i actually want to echo what emma said i think a lot of individuals and we know there's a lot of noise in the manual therapy space and you know we all have the frustrations of people not even really seeing the same value on the manual therapy side. And there's a lot of, I think, just confusion out there. But I think what people really need to understand is your journey of, as Emma said, like you were, you know, really deep in the manual therapy world. You still teach in the Mulligan system, but how did you evolve into seeing this new part where, you know, I, I tell everybody you're the master of communication and uh, you know, you've taught me a lot of what I've, been able to implement into practice, but how did that journey come about? Like, when did you have that realization? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for, for inviting me on this. I didn't even realize we were on tape. So here we go. <laughs> here <laughs> never, we go. Carol you never, are being recorded. Never, never cued me in, but uh, appreciate it being here in the, in the kind words. So now I'm formally myself. Um, yeah, it's been a long journey for me and I don't want to you know, get too deep into talking about me, but, but you guys probably, and everyone has to realize that like where we came from, you can only look back to see just how far we've come as a profession. And it's really humbling just to watch you guys and watch just what our profession is today. 
and just to see how many people we actually helped and and to kind of lead into my story like i graduated in 91 <laughs> that's my dog or yours emma but i graduated in 91 and i think it's an honor i think karen was on here but i think i'm the first non-mac pt to be on here maybe but uh back in the day we would sell our notes to the mac student just kidding but um it's really we've come a long way and and you really had to have a deep conversation to to say what a physiotherapist even was. And uh, I went to Western, we had 32 kids in our class and I just got a note that it's gonna go up to 120. And it's yeah. like, wow, how are you gonna pack them in? And where's everyone gonna work after? Um, but we had seven guys and to get into our class, you had to roll up your pant leg and show your ACL scars. And literally, I think six of the seven guys we had got introduced to PT at the time from uh, from injuries and then kind of thinking, hey, that's kind of really cool. I'd love to do that. But there was no Internet. The learning was. You know, writing on a chalkboard like it was a really different experience. And You guys know Elborn. Our school was the, the Elborn gym, like the old gym. Um, so it was a little bit of stimulation overload. But I graduated in um, in 91 and there were no jobs like it was tough to get a job. Private clinics were brand new and they were kind of on the. I'll say this nicely, but we were told at school, don't go work at a private clinic because that's evil. Right. You don't want, <laughs> want to take money from people. And, and remember, too, that we are still heavily infused into the government funding at the time. And most of those private clinics, let's be honest at the time, were what we called G-code clinics. They were physician owned. And I think the sentiment from the school was, yeah, we're our own profession. We wanna earn that. We don't want you just to go out and right, be somebody's slave. Let's, let's kind of say that nicely. Um, so I had a hospital job. Like basically most of us went into the hospitals. Most of the outpatients in London, I'd say 90% of outpatients at the time were seen out of the three hospitals in the basement. I got a job at St. Joe's and uh, three of us from my class. And it was, you go where you're told. So I go in there. I don't know where I'm going to work. And I guess where my first job was in the ICU. You want to talk oh, wow. about being unprepared? You want to talk about your walk in there. You have no idea what the hell is going on. <laughs> and you're in there with bells and whistles. And when it was all over, I think I only killed one person. But it wasn't all just me. And that's a joke. But it was talk about eye opening, right? And I was a chest physio. And that's what I was a chest physio for a good six months on every floor of the hospital. I had an ICU duty. And I could percuss with the best of them. Let me tell you, I was, I was good. Um, and I, I joined the cardio rest division. I went to anything you because talk about not knowing what you're doing. And there was no real, you couldn't read any, there was no, nothing online. So I kind of made my little journey, did as much as I could through that six months and tried to grow myself. I started, um, like a respiratory program for rehab. I had people with resistance on ventilators. I was hardcore. And then <laughs> six months came up and I had the opportunity 
hey, do you want to do an outpatient, um, an outpatient kind of rotation? And I was like, you know, I'm really enjoying this kind of role. Like, it, I kind of really embraced it. But I thought, you know what, I'm here to grow and learn. I'm going to kind of, I always had, I always had chest physio duty. I always probably had 20% of my job, but I got out of the ICU at that point and kind of went into the old gym basement clinic at St. Joe's and how you'd give directions was when you see to the sign that says morgue, turn left. And that's where we worked at St. Joe's <laughs> in the basement. The prime location. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and literally I was a year and a half in the hospital and looking back, what a gift. What a gift, because I saw things I would have never seen on a street corner, right? I saw people, unfortunately, lose their lose their battle, and get choked up a little bit. Like, just, it was difficult at the time, but what a growth, what a growth opportunity um, to go through that year and a half. And my wife worked at CPRI at the time, and the politics of the time was a little unstable with the government and we started the public sector really started to get cut back and we were like you're not getting paid this week um, we're cutting back so we we kind of made a decision at the time one of us would make this wild plunge into private practice right and i was watching i a couple of my friends in other cities had started to and physios were starting then to go out and open clinics um, with some backing and and it was it was scary it was like whoa you're gonna go out on a street corner talk about business daryl we were not prepared <laughs> um and that's why kudos to you and it was a it was an honor to teach with you a couple years just on how far you and jackie and uh, um you know jackie who's now the president of like university hospital is, is what wow to see physios rise to that position kind of brings tears to my eyes but uh, here's how synchronicity works in the world. I'm in a Tim Horton Donuts in London. And I walk in there. You guys would know the one on Oxford and Talbot. And I walk in there. And there's Jack Miller with his family. Right? And Jack, I only knew him as this crazy guy. And I still know him as this crazy guy. But wonderful man. And that's a whole different program in itself. Um and I thought, there's that crazy guy that talked about this manual therapy. He'd come back from New Zealand. This is He talked about two years ago in our class. He was like a guest speaker and, and was like, wow, what is that stuff? I don't know about that. Um, and I left. I thought, oh, he's with his family. I don't want to say anything. And I left and got in my car. I got to the edge of the parking lot and I said, screw this. I'm going back in. So I parked the car again. I went back in and said, you know what? Thank you for that lecture you gave two years ago. I kind of caught him off guard. And he said, and I just basically said, hey, I work down the street from you. I know you've just opened a clinic. Would it be okay if I just come and watch? So I would go down the street after my shift at St. Joe's. I'd walk two blocks down to, to Jack's clinic at the time. And um, CBI, which come full circle I'm at now and I would watch him. And after a couple months, somebody left and he offered me the job. So it was kind of crazy just how it kind of worked. And that was my foray going from a little bit of chest neuro and a little bit of ortho in outpatients at St. Joe's in London 
into this role at CBI, which, wow, talk about demographics. I hit the baby boomers when they hit 40. And you want to talk about Canadian Back Institute at the time? All I saw all day long was necks and backs, people crooked, people with radiculopathies. So it was a whole new world for me to uh, to live in that. And the boomers have have been my my crowd. I've kind of grown up with them, and uh, now I got to, you know got to see them with their hips and knees and shoulders, and and it's been amazing. Like like I said, I'll get teared up because I've had four or five generations of a family. Yeah. yeah over 30, you know, over 33 years. And, and it's, it's a privilege. Mm -hmm. So that's my quick story. And, and as far as the manual therapy part of that, I mean, when you work next door to Jack Miller and you watch Jack Miller go from seven to seven every day um, and you see just the passion and, uh, and what he brought to the table, it was contagious. And uh, I learned most of my stuff from Jack, went through the F camp stuff, but not till nine, 10 years after. And kudos to you guys, because I, I know I've come across both of you in that program. I can't say enough about Jackie Sadie and the program and, and Bav and uh, and everything that I think Western has has developed. And, it, and it's such a great program because it continues to develop. And, and I really like it because it got the people part of it. But I realized after 10 years of, kind of being a physio and getting that F camped at about my 10 year mark, my patient outcomes went down and I really, it, it became more about my hands and, and getting away from really the basics of just being a good, being a good human. I didn't know about communication and then something happened. Boom. Right. It's 2001. So I'm about 10 years in and the, the climate at the time wasn't working for us at the clinic. And um, the four of us, Jack, uh, Len Cunning, who's passed away, uh, brilliant, uh, brilliant man, Brian Harris and myself, we said, hey, why are we in this business? Help people get better, have fun, and don't go broke. We don't know much <laughs> about business, but we do, right? We've been running these private clinics for years. So we know the lay of the land. We go out on our own. We said it's time to do our own thing. So we started Body Mechanics here in London. at, uh, And we started with two locations. The three guys got to go into a spot on Oxford Street. And good old Jim <laughs> took a room, a friggin' room. I took a room with a bed, right? And Emma can smile because she gets this, but I took a room with a bed. I went from this 2000 square foot facility where I worked with a kin. I had at the time state-of-the-art equipment. I had help and I went to a room with the bed, right? And whatever I could scavenge, right? From, uh, from my house at the time. And it was the best decision I ever made. Um, and talk about being, a uh, you know, a fish out out of water again I got to learn about people and then it became all about the person in front of me again and it really grounded me and you know the last 15 years of my career I can say if it's 
if it's out there on the people side, I think I've probably taken it. Um, and it's, it's been a journey, right? I think everyone, there's no bypass, everyone will go through their own journey. But that was a gift for me. And uh, that's me full circle. And now we sold our clinics, my partners got old, some have passed away. And uh, I found myself back at the start back at, uh, you know, CBI health now. Um, they asked me to come on as the national director of training and development or I'll call talent development. And it's just a gift to go into the clinics and help people kind of be better therapists. So good. So good. Mm. I can totally see you thriving in that role. And yeah, I get that sort of one room schoolhouse physio method. I have done that and continue to do it. And you know, I think there's there's pros and cons to everything, but I also agree that slowing myself down and bringing my focus and attention onto the person has made all the difference in the world. What sort of things are you seeing now um, in your role um, as sort of this talent um, curator um, that are coming up for clinicians, the clinicians that you're working with and, and chatting with, what, what's coming up for them right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you guys probably could guess the top three. It's, it's communication, but deeper. It, it's connection, really kind of, we've kind of come from a world or I've come from a world where there was no information at all. We got good at making stuff up. And I'm, I'm always uncomfortable with the fake it till you make it. I don't think it's good advice. I like to, I, I always would say face it till you make it, right? Face mm. it till you make it. There's more of that. a, yeah, there's more of a growth piece in that. And you're, and um, so, and that's what I see now. There's so much information. People are paralyzed by it. What do I do? Where do I start? Uh, the technology can be overwhelming and it all just builds up to create this noise that they, you know, they're forgetting they're in a conversation. They're forgetting that, um, you know, it's, it's about the person in front of you. And, and we all do that. Well, don't get me wrong. Everybody communicates as a clinician. We're all in this to help people. We want to help people, but sometimes we don't connect. And I think the biggest gap I see is people just aren't, connecting maybe as well as they could and mm. losing that um yeah losing that that patient maybe a little bit too quickly because of that lack of connection yeah and and you know what it's i was kind of break this up into a couple of parts if you if you're okay with that but you know em and i chatted about in a previous session mm. just sort of you know what did we learn during the pandemic and we learned just how important communication was but deeper to that as you said is like we were connecting with people when we couldn't touch them right clinics were closed right but we were still open for service what do you what do you see as some of the missing pieces like why did that focus on connection kind of lose a bit of steam i'd like yeah and again kudos to you daryl too and maggie and everyone who brought us together emma in that uh pandemic right like we were phoning, like, we would go in, I would go into work. Like, it was a strange time. I had six people in my house. So I had to get out of here. <laughs> I would go into work and pretend I would get dressed the same time every day. I, mm -hmm. I would go into work, pretend I was working, just to go in and use the internet. <laughs> I would, like, literally, it was like the first, 
it was good for me because I had time to myself to just dwell mm -hmm. into stuff and grow. But I grabbed that patient list. I called my patients. I freaking delivered groceries. Like I was out mm -hmm. there trying to, to and, and connection took on a whole different meaning. And for the first time in my life, you guys can really appreciate this. You could see how loneliness is an epidemic. Loneliness mm -hmm. is as bad as smoking or being like, right? Yeah. It's just a huge health determinant. And it opened my eyes. Okay, here I am. Start to get on virtual as quick as I could. What a privilege to be invited into somebody else's home. You know what? Mm -hmm. I did do house calls before, but not to the extent of meeting someone three, four months into a, a pandemic. And you could realize, oh my gosh, like there's no way they could do the stuff I'm asking them to do. Like you have to take a step back. And it really, really brought to light how important the connection piece was and how important that was just part of the therapy. And it was actually maybe even a bigger part of the therapy than I ever gave it credit for is just this sense of being on a team with somebody. And it wasn't even about the therapy on those phone calls. Half the time it was just being human and having a conversation and connecting on just something deeper that really fueled that person. Yeah. And Jim, you always sort of have a few like, you know, phrases that I always remember and use, right? Like one of the things you always say is you have to meet the patient where they're at, right? You got to step to the patient, but what's really interesting. And this is going to go somewhere in a second, but what I believe we learned too, of like hearing that and, and learning that from you is that when we were in some of those virtual environments, like all, like someone welcoming me into their home, I had a better understanding of how my plan of care was going to best service that individual, not the knee problem, like the person that I was working with, right? So you think about all these things that I would always do and print out all these exercises, and then you realize that, oh my goodness, like this person can't even do them. There's no one at home to assist that. They don't have an area to do this work at. Um, and the effort is significant when you think about it. But it, I came with every positive intention. But unfortunately, it was my provider intention, not necessarily a collaborative intention. Yeah. And, and I'll take it a step back, Daryl, and, and come back to that comment. And I agree fully. And I'll, I'll come back to that. What do we really, what did we learn the most in, in COVID? I think we really took a step back to that empathy piece, mm -hmm. right? And Emma, you do this so well in, in your coaching journey. Um, and what we've learned at Coactive on that journey is we have to meet people where they are. But as clinicians, we want so much for them that sometimes we tend to meet them where we want them to be. And it's not totally. the same place, right? And that's, to me, what empathy really is, and especially that cognitive empathy piece, not the emotional, that we, we go there, but we need to, you know, I've cried with people. I've I've seen lots of sad stuff, but I can't serve from that position, right? I serve from compassion, but to meet somebody where they truly are is a real gift. And it's hard to do because you have to suspend judgment and you have to realize that you'll get there where, where you kind of confluence, right? We tend to, to put our story on them mm. instead of us really meeting them at their story. 
and making a new story. That's what I mean by this confluence piece. And as a profession, what we do really well without recognizing it, when we peel back this thing called communication and we peel it down to you know, trust and we take away the connection and we take away the empathy and you keep peeling it down, we're really storytellers. We're hope dealers and the good clinicians without even really probably reflecting on it are really good storytellers because they meet people where they are and they create a new story together. And that is the real gift, I think, of going from good to great is this narrative confluence piece um, that really connects on a deeper level with somebody's deeper why, Daryl, that it's not about my knee or my quads. It's about, you know, picking up my grandkids or being able to to walk with my my partner. Mm. I love that mm. so much. That was so well said. It is so true um, that holding holding whatever space needs to be held and not having our own agenda um, in those interactions is is so key. So I'm wondering how you are sort of educating the newer clinicians around this, because I, I know certainly there's there's maybe more of a focus or at least a conversation about it uh, in schools now, but you know, the clinicians that you're working with, how are you developing these skills with them? Because they are skills, I think, to be developed and, and practiced and worked on. And it's, and it's a practice, right? We call it a practice yeah. for a reason, and it's a practice. And there's skills, and it's so tough to, like I was there talking about this a couple of weeks ago at Western, and uh, but there's no bypass, right? I mean, we can go and, and try to try to have this conversation, but honestly, I think it takes about five years to really trip over the truth a little bit and get comfortable in that environment and um, and learn to meet people where they are because there's so much coming at us so quick. And I think, how do I develop people? Ultimately, it's tapping into their own intrinsic motivation to grow this mm -hmm. as a skill, right? Yeah. And to recognize, you guys know, I'll call it power skills and have fun with that because I think they're the hard skills, not the soft skills. Yeah. And ultimately, Daryl had a good post today. And I always like to try to poke him a bit on Instagram just to have some fun. But, um, <laughs> and it's, he said, the one one thing we do with everybody is education, right? The one thing we do, and it is that red line, but to peel that back even further, empathy and understanding must precede advice. So what we really do with everyone is that connection piece. And I think that's the real, the real key ingredient that's at the beginning and the end of everything we do or we strive to do. So just having conversations around that, I'm on just trying to help people trip over the, the truth um, that these skills are important. They're not going to come overnight. They're going to come because you've had tough conversations. You've, yeah. They're going to come because we fail with people. We fail with people. Like as, as good as I like to think I am and as I have bad days, I have people I just can't connect with. Drives me freaking crazy. <laughs> I can send them to, to my colleague. And it's a total different situation and it's humbling. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just having, having 
people have the opportunity to just see how important it is just to kind of grow these human skills and to grow that empathy, cultivate that awareness. Um, and just that that human side of stuff, right? I'd like to think that, you know, don't let the uh, T-values and the gurus kind of get in your way, right? Be true to yourself. <laughs> and again, yeah. it's all about meeting that other person where they are. But guess what? You can't meet them where they are until you know how to meet yourself where you are. And that's what mm -hmm. you do so well, Emma, is help, you know, create those habits. So my role is to help clinicians create the habits that then lead into them attracting a successful, let's say effective practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's totally the hill I will die on that personal development is professional development. And the more you know yourself and, and are conscious of, of your own self, the more you can be conscious and aware of others and what's needed in the moment. And I think that's something that, you know, um therapists do so well is know themselves well enough to know who they can help and who maybe is not a good fit and they have this matching process and you know it's something that's so strongly held in in that profession is that you know you meet and make sure we're a good fit for each other on both ends and that's something i i always think that PT or just, you know, sort of rehab professionals miss out on is that, you know, connection piece. Are we the right fit, you know, clinician to, to patient? Um, and that's, you know, where you can get better outcomes if it's a good fit. Mm -hmm. It's therapy yeah. with a coaching edge, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Therapy with a coaching edge, not always telling, but probably leaning more on the asking part, right? I think most of our patients are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole if we just let them kind of guide us there a little. And at Daryl, I'll kind of echo back to something I think you talked about when Karen was on. Um, you you got to watch yourself on video. If you ever have a chance, it's humbling. And you guys talked about let's create connect, communication courses. Well, we tried. And I think we're trying to get back to it, but Jazz Deer, Dave Walton, and I kind of threw our hat in the ring in about 2014, 15, 16, 17. And we would tape people, we'd watch, and you know, we'd see these studies come in that said, what what do patients want? What's the thing they want from us as a clinic clinician? What's what's number six? Skill. Okay, what's number five? Education, right? What's number one? Empathy. And empathy and communication meeting at this connection piece. Well, I didn't know what empathy was in 2012, right? Let's be honest. Not to not to the to the to the depth that we understand it now from the research. Who the hell knew what connection was? We didn't know. It's like ah, 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 connection, empathy. Ah, ah. You know what I mean? <laughs> we were really science, but that social science piece is probably more of what we do. And you could see on the video, you could see on the video, this incredible knock off the sound. You could see on the video where two people would literally, their posture would mimic and they would lean in. This arm length space, all of the sudden became a whole different environment. And you, you could see what I would call connection. And it was like, wow, 
I just saw something, you know, spiritual in that in that moment happening between two people. Call it trust, call it whatever. Something changes. And when you kind of slow the tape down and chunk it, you can see it happen. And then it was, we went out there and said, how do we teach this? Well, we don't know. Maybe you can't. But to reflect on it, that emotional awareness, that emotional intelligence piece, that intentionality to try to be present is what we tried to just have conversations about. And I could, I can put up a, you know, an ad for a Mulligan course. I'll fill it tomorrow. But we would go out three of us for three other people. There'd be three of us and two, two other clinicians. <laughs> it would be like crazy. But we've really come a long way. And, and uh, you know, shout out to Dave and, you know, Michelle Kleiner, Maxine Michuk, and, you know, everyone who's really grabbed this by the horns and, and put it on the map now. So mm-hmm. I think the courses are out there, but they're farther and fewer between. And uh, but like you guys talk about motivational interviewing, that would probably be the first thing I took out of school. Right. And that's what I tried to talk to the students about just to at least be be able to to kind of know what taps into that. Ultimately, it's about intrinsic motivation. We don't really engage people. Maybe they engage themselves, but we do it through autonomy support. And this relatedness, this, you know, empathy piece, this team piece. And that's where the self-efficacy, self-confidence comes that really drives that intrinsic motivation. So I'll just say at the end of the day, we're hope dealers, right? And it's how do you walk that path with somebody? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's, I hope people really like listen to this episode and like, play it back or maybe slow it down because Jim there's so much information here that's that's critical right and even just really starting to get people to process things you know this is therapy with a coaching edge right and you could call your therapy whatever you want right I'm still a manual manipulative therapist I still do consulting every week but I'm actually always coming at it from a coaching perspective right and I think the parts that get missed at times right is that we don't, we, you know, those, we can actually really only test some of the hard skills from a competency-based program, right? So this stuff sometimes is like, we can check the box. Yeah, we did motivational interviewing. Great. You can do a few things, but you don't necessarily walk the walk unless you literally practice it, right? Yeah. And we just had a gentleman too, and, and to kind of, you know, most people in, in one of our coaching programs never finishes the last module because in that last module, you have to record yourself and you can get consent. Mm-hmm. That patient most of the time does consent. However, they can also say no and just point the camera on you. And the guy that actually submitted to me on Friday was like, whoa, I didn't know it looked like that. And I was like, look at it. I was like, clinically, I couldn't say anything different. But from a presentation perspective, it was not that strong for, for a guy that's super talented, right? Because I, I know who he is. But but it's so interesting. But in that literally eight-minute video, that guy just changed his practice. And I had nothing to do with it other than forced him <laughs> to do the video. That's it. It's brilliant because you can't change what you don't see, right? You can't change what you don't feel. And when you watch the video of yourself, you'll you'll feel things and see things that you know you 
you, you just can do, I don't like to use the word better, but you can, you know, meet somebody where they're at a little better. And if mm -hmm. you look at the things that connect tone, right, the speed of the way you talk, I mean, Karen nailed it on her episode, all that body language stuff. <laughs> if you don't watch yourself, you're really not aware of it. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And, it, and it's almost like when you're in those good connective kind of assessments and the magic's day one, right? You can't undersell the importance of day one is connection, not perfection. It's just meeting that person where they are and to almost kind of be watching yourself in that awareness piece. And that takes practice. And I think that's where you just have to go out and do it a bunch. But really, if there was a way to speed it up, it would be the video and watching, even if it's just the audio, watching, yeah. listening to how that kind of conversation played out. Yeah. yeah. And I think, I mean, this is sort of where I think some of your biggest strengths are too, and you, like with, with the people you work with, like, I feel like there's a vulnerability piece yes. that people avoid, myself included. Totally. Like, yeah, I'm not it... I think, you know, if we think about, you know, watching yourself back on videotape, right, that's, that's you. And we, you know, mm -hmm. that's why I think a, a mulligan course or like a hands on course feels so easy, because that's an external thing. That's an external resource we have versus, you know, our tone and, and mm -hmm. our body language and our presence with people and our ability to connect is, is so internal and can hold up such a big mirror for us. And sometimes we just don't want to see these things. And, and so it does take a lot of courage and, and vulnerability in order to, to, to look in that direction. And I think so often we want, we want to look where it feels, you mm -hmm. know, quote unquote, safer or, yeah. or easier. Um, and so, yeah. you know, leaning in that way, it's not to say it's it's easy, but there's just such a big payoff there, and and I see it time and time again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and huge. I, and I think and it's I cut, of, I'm going to cut Daryl off. Yeah, go ahead. Just 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 for fun on your own, because I got to I got to <laughs> jump on this piece. That's not what I would do with the client, ladies and gentlemen. But yeah. uh, I'll just say yes and for Daryl. Because I, I know I got to get my words in here and I'm probably talking way more than I'm used to when I'm with Daryl. But um, I'll just say, too, that that vulnerability piece is huge, right? If we're vulnerable, it really creates that psychological safe place for somebody yeah. else to be vulnerable, too. And we all I laugh at some of the stuff. Well, manual therapy is going to disable people. Oh, come on. One of the greatest connectors is touch right when done in the appropriate way and it's the story right it's the story that disables people it's the what we're telling them and yeah. i think that's coming back full circle that's that piece but really to be vulnerable to have courage to be able to tap into that as early as you can on your growth journey and as our career and i would be a physio all over again, like there's nothing else I would rather do. Like I would do this all over in my next life, but it comes back to that resilience piece. And that's the key, right? I've seen a, a 33, like I've been a PT for 33 years. I probably did first year. Well, not, not quite, but I probably did some years over again. I wasn't always growing, yeah. right? I wasn't always intentional, but when you look back, 
probably the the greatest thing I can hang my hat on is a this resilience piece. And resilience, I think, takes a little bit of time to cultivate. And it comes from my my acronym for grit might be growth mindset, resilience, right? Intentionality and, and transformation. I mean, those pieces are, I think, what we get, but we get it by being vulnerable. We get it. And that's a strength. We get it by freaking crying with people. We get it by entering into those spaces that are so uncomfortable that that's where actually transformation takes places and by, by takes place. And by going into those spaces that makes grows that resiliency. And that's what makes us better clinicians and being able to hold space and meet people where they are. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we kind of come to wrap this up, because I know Emma's watching the clock because she knows I'm usually late to start. And I'm I got to keep, I got to keep them yeah. on time, Jim. And, it's, it's a hard and battle. And there's so much really important stuff here. So Emma, you always talk about personal development and how that drives professional development. Jim, you and I are doing a webinar tomorrow that I actually forgot about. And in your bio, it's like, I believe personal development is professional development. And then we're starting to like really talk about a few like really different things here, right? Resiliency, facing challenges, right? Understanding difficult conversations, right? And if you start to really think about it, like we have all of these thoughts around failing forward and self-reflection, but we don't really ever, we try to avoid a lot of that. So I think it really goes back to two of the things that you two really, you know, put emphasis on, which is that sometimes if that is a little bit of your barrier, you actually may need to spend a bit more time on the personal development in order to really take full, you know, maybe like the full run at your professional development. Because trust me, Jim can critique my mulligan techniques, say I didn't do very well, but I don't give a shit because I don't see him again on Monday right? I'm going to, I'm going to try it on my patient. But the one thing and I have to throw this in because this totally pissed me off is I did a consult on Friday and the patient said I had to stop physio because of what my MRI said. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And Jim, this hones in on your point. Manual therapy is not hurting people. The narrative is so important. And if you really don't know what to say to a patient, don't say it. Right. Because yeah. telling this patient that her L5S1 disc was not a problem. Right. So anyway, that's just my little soda. Cause I think you're right, Jim, is I think people are yeah. getting confused in the space, but what's important yeah. is that your words actually matter to people and you have to be super yeah. careful on that. But Jim, what I want to get at before Emma ends our session with her really good question is. I, I got to read a poem too. I'm not leaving. Okay. Without reading All right. Oh, yes. Okay. So here's, we've all said this, and I think this is a a concern in the manual therapy world too. We all talk about, we did these programs, we got this certification, our outcomes were worse, right? And I think we really need to address this because it wasn't that our outcomes became worse necessarily. I actually think our awareness of outcome improved. So what are your thoughts? Because we hear this all the time right? Like oh, I did these courses and yeah. I, I got worse, but, but we didn't, it changed. And you always talk about every five years, I kind of re like, I was actually like reborn in the physio space. So for all those people that are hearing, you know, respected clinicians saying like, oh, I did coursework and I became worse, but what, what do you really want to tell them? 
the awareness changed the lens changed mm-hmm. and uh shout out to nick hannah nick's my body and, and we'll have this conversation all the time and anyone who gets a chance to work with nick is blessed but manual therapy is just to stop on the way but unfortunately after you put all that training in sometimes it becomes the way and you spend a little bit too long at, at that you know at that place and you know ultimately just not being aware of the that it's a person in front of you and unfortunately becomes a little bit more about a body part. That's all. And I think, unfortunately, everyone's going to kind of have that journey, no matter what technique, what course you're going to use, you, you immerse yourself in it. You maybe use it a little bit too much and you forget Mm -hmm. it's just a stop on the way to meeting somebody where they're really at and helping guide them to to Mm -hmm. a better place. And the key thing is that's why in this space, that lifelong learning actually has to be a true consideration as a rehab professional, right? Okay. Like, cause that's really what you've honed in at, right? So, so Emma, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize the five key points that people have to take away from Jim and then I'll let you, okay. you can close. Sounds good. So a couple of key things that I, I wrote down actually, Jim, I actually took notes and I never <laughs> is everyone stop saying fake it till you make it. It's face it till you make it. Understanding you need to practice with intention and be resilient. Always be human first. And you two do it very well, which is meeting your patient where they're at. And I think the one caveat that I think everyone needs to understand from this, because you both educate this beautifully, is sometimes we're not the right fit for everybody. But Jim, what you did, though, is you found a fit for somebody else. So I think at times people have walked away to say, oh, Mr. Smith didn't come back. I wasn't the right fit. That's okay. Guess what, though? Where's Mr. Smith's fit? That he's still a fit for physiotherapy or chiro or massage services. He needs help to navigate the healthcare system in Canada because it's complex. So that's okay to identify that. But how can we help these people? Because we probably know, and Emma, you say this all the time, like, I know who's really well suited for this individual. That's actually how I can best serve this person. And those were my key takeaways. And don't be afraid to be reborn every five years. Is that right, Jim? Five? Yeah, I mean, don't get stuck on the pendulum, right? It's only going to come around and, and hit you on the ass as it maybe <laughs> knock you on the head as it swings by the second time. And you know what? Like, the research is changing. At the end of the day, we still have to live in the best practice world. And um, yeah, I think it's part of that growth journey is just, lean into change and as we change our passions change what fuels us and ignites us changes and it's really nice if you can make that all part of your practice too yeah so good so good thank you this is why this is why you topped our list um, mm-hmm. because I knew you were going to drop so much value here today. Um, I want to save your poem for last we'll send people out with a poem okay so we need to make sure we do that. But before that, we always ask one last question. If you were to go back to Jim of 1991, new grad, what advice would you tell him? It's always a tough question because I'm not sure Jim in 1991 could hear me. Could right? receive it. Jim, yeah, fair Jim enough. Jim in 1991 <laughs> has to fall, fall down a little bit and uh, get, you know, get dirty and, and learn that, uh, learn the hard way. So I don't think there's any bypass through it, but what would I tell myself would just be slow down, right? Mm-hmm. Breathe, 
you guys have to understand I had two kids at 25 right I, I was a young dad like for me to juggle it wow it's yeah. amazing just to look back and just see how 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 fast it goes to so that would be just slow down breathe it in you can get the credentials over 30 years you don't have to get them in three years and uh and oh I would just tell myself you're gonna have one fucking hell of a good life just enjoy it and the little things that. are the big things right yeah. and um and I learned so much from my colleagues at the time just to lean in. I learned how to be a father from Brian Harris and, crop, and to be a clinician mm -hmm. from Jack Miller. So mm -hmm. I'm touched because I would do it all over again. That's what I would just tell myself, slow down and smell the roses because it goes fast, guys. It mm -hmm. goes fast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Jim, do you think, do you think okay. Jack remembers the best donut he ever had in his life when he walked back into that Tim Hortons? I don't think Jack remembers a lot anymore. I don't think Jack remembers a lot anymore, but uh, what a lovely man. And he'll come across as wanting to fight the world, but that guy would take his shirt off for you in a second. So um, kudos to Jack and, and Brian, probably the two guys that, uh, that, you know, made my life a whole lot better. Mm, so good. So we would love to hear your poem. Okay. So this is called Being a Clinician. And you wrote this, right, Jim? Yeah. You know what? You know. People laugh at me. I get hackled all the time about poetry. But you know what? What's the number one thing that taps into cultivating empathy? Poetry, right? You enter into a space. It's an act of resilience. You learn about yourself. You can meet people where they are. Um, this is called being a clinician. Live out on the edges, out beyond the flavor of the day. You will lose years trying to grab onto the pain pendulum as it swings by avoid the extremes as the t-values and the gurus come to find and shame you take off your mask be true to the one staring at you in the mirror live the questions as one day you will live into the answer know yourself to grow yourself love and empathy are always the door to connection start with the door that opens inside you are the poem not the letters after your name connect with people earn trust, lean into change, enjoy the wind as it slaps you in the face, be brave, fall down, get up smiling, find meaning at the confluence of heart and soul. You will find your way and you will disappear only to arrive all over again. So thank you, you guys for having me on. Thank you for kind of being leaders in this profession and shout out to everyone who is brave enough to be a clinician and. Uh, just try to help people get better and help walk them on their journey. It's a privilege. Thank you, Jim. That was beautiful. Yeah. That was awesome. Jim, when do I get a copy of that from my office? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. You. I don't, I like, it's not too often. I don't have any words, <laughs> but that was impressive, Jim. And, and I think, you know, what people really have to think about is, is, I could, as you were reading and you know, like I'm used to being the guy that I'm already thinking of my next thing while someone else is talking, but I actually fully listened and I could actually hear sections of my story inside of there. And I think a lot of people will be able to resonate. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's just great 
understanding for people of what's to come and not see yourself as a failure, but continue to think about ways of failing forward. And if anyone's interested in kind of going on a little bit of a journey, I'm going to take the Emma um, plunge and do a little coaching myself finally as yes, I get old and, and slow down. So if anyone's interested, <laughs> reach out. I'll even have a website tomorrow, I think. So good. So good. Yeah. Jim, where can people, where can people find you, follow you? This will be out. If you're, if your website's launching tomorrow, it'll be, it'll be launched. Well, it's already up there. It's, it's, it's a weird, (laughs) it's a weird one. I kind of wrote a poetry (laughs) book and it's called Curiosity, right? Uh, A pun on curiosity, but curiosity in Italian means heart and osity, the suffix means state of being. So it's the heart of being. So curiosity, C-O-U. R E O S I T Y dot com. Find me there, and there's some poetry resources. There's something I call the Clinician's Corner that I'm going to lean into, you know, to these habits and going from good to great. So just fun, Amazing. fun for me to help kind of people grow. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes too, Jim. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Awesome. All right, Jim. Well, thanks. It's always a pleasure. Thank thanks, Joe. Thanks, Emma. Here's in London soon. Okay. Great job. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. Take care. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. And that's all for today. Thanks for tuning into today's episode and joining us on this journey to get smarter in business and life by learning from the top clinicians in the world. Make sure to connect with me on Instagram at Daryl Yardley and be sure to follow my co-host Emma at Press Play Physio to stay connected. And also visit us at clinicianlife.com for more resources, articles, and opportunities to participate in the show. We'd love to have you on to share your expertise and insights with our growing audience. Can't wait to see you next week.